Evening, everybody. You know, they say that after a sermon, some folk rise up inspired. Others wake up refreshed. <laughs> so those of you who are getting recycled today, I'll, I will totally understand if you sort of nod off, but I'm going to try really hard to keep you awake. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go and rabbit on about the conditions of the world around us because they're so obvious to us the things that are happening in the world and in our environment in South Africa. But if there are three words that, for me, kind of epitomize what's happening, is one, instability, uncertainty, and change. Lots and lots of change coming at us in unrelenting waves, like punches in a boxing ring. But it's not new, really. So... When I was a young man about 50 years ago, it's just the other day, there was a, I remember reading a book by a man called Alvin Toffler. It was called Future Shock. I don't know if any of you guys want to show your age as well by admitting you read it. But, but his whole idea here was that people are suffering from trauma. This is 50 years ago. Real trauma from the premature arrival of the future. So the future arrives so quickly that they have not anticipated. And it shocks them. And knocks them off the equilibrium. And he gave an example, if I remember correctly, in the book about the invention of a motor car, for instance. He said, you know, in our great-grandfather's days, they, you would be in South Africa and you'd hear that... Um, I didn't, he didn't use South Africa, but I'm using South Africa. You'd hear that the motor car had been invented. And you'd say, oh, that's interesting, you know. And then eventually somebody would write a letter telling you about this new invention. And then maybe a sketch of it or a photograph would arrive and it would find its way into the local newspapers and everybody would start to think about it. Oh, that's interesting. And then somebody would arrive on the, the steamer because you know, it took months to get from one place to the other and say, gosh, they've seen one of these things. You know, it's frightening all the horses in America. And then the great day would arrive when the first motor car rolled off the ship in Captain Harbour. And by that stage, everybody would be rejoicing and saying, wow, we've been anticipating this, this is a wonderful thing. But he was writing about the fact that these motor cars, so to speak, were arriving before you knew they were going to come. Oh, what the hang is that? And it was shaking people. Now, that's 50 years ago. Now, I don't know what the difference in the rate of change is, but it's got to be like 100 times worse. And, and extensive, right across the board. So our environment, our ecology, our politics... Our social structures, our technologies, all those things are, are changing with um, mind-numbing rapidity right now. And we have to face things that other generations haven't faced. In our schools today, teachers and parents are having to face gender identity issues. They didn't deal with those things before. These are, these are social, societal change which are hitting us. Now, how are we supposed to deal with a mega change that's hitting us in our times? Because the rate of change has the power to discombobulate us. It really does. To trauma, traumatize us. Knock us off our perches. And it causes a lot of problems with people. It causes mental illnesses sometimes. It causes depression. And causes a lot of aberrant behaviors in ourselves and in others. So how are we supposed to deal with it? Well, the wisdom of the world says, well, just write it. Rise above it, friend. You've got to be the master of change. 
You've got to be the change maker. Yeah, raw. Isn't that so? You hear it all the time. But frankly, I find that it's about as useful as saying to the average citizen of this country, listen, you've got to dictate the policy to the government. What are you sitting around for? Why did you just go into ESCOM and sort out that, that mess before the lights go? Oh, sorry, too late. So we just left feeling frustrated, saying, I can't control these things, but I have to deal with them. They're hitting me. There's got to be a better way. But a lot of folk, and unfortunately including some Christians, don't find a better way. They find a bad way. Here are the three negative ways that a lot of people try to deal with the trauma of change. One is trying to be as pliable as Play-Doh and as color-adaptive as a squid or a chameleon. Just go with the flow. Absorb into yourself the new values and the new priorities and the new principles of the world around you and just blend in, brother. And they use that as a survival strategy, but it's a bad one because it just diminishes us. And particularly for Christians, what it, what it does is it, it kind of makes you guilty and you lose your sense of identity if you try and do that. See, here's how the Christian thinks. I was born, I've been raised in a Christian home, whatever it is, I've been a Christian for 30, 40 years, and I've believed in these things with all my heart, and now I've compromised. Now I'm absorbing into myself all these concepts and principles which are alien to my belief. Who am I actually? What is my life built on? Other folk adopt a strategy of trying to disappear. As often as they can, they dive into some kind of alternative reality. And I'm not talking just about video games and things of that nature, although some folk do that. I'm talking about games and sport and reality TV and all that sort of stuff, spending an ordinary amount of time to try and duck the fact that we're dealing with real life. And other folk go one step further. They start getting involved in illicit relationships with other people, or they start getting into pornography and things of that nature in the hope that they can escape the need to deal with the things that they don't feel they can deal with. And the third category go one step even worse. They try and numb the trauma with prescription drugs or alcohol, tuck or cocaine or whatever it is. And again, if you think that's not a problem in my society, our society, think again. It's a very, very real thing. Very real. Now look, none of these strategies work. They, they, they fail hopelessly. All they do is they diminish us. They don't equip us or help us to deal with change. So I want to propose a biblical and a Jesus-centered alternative. And I've called it the survival strategy. Yeah, you heard me correctly, survival. Those of you who've been around for a few years might remember that I coined this word in 2007. Mark, you're my record keeper. I know. You always look at your Bible and you say, yeah, you'll tell me the name of the sermon even, won't you? And the text. Keeps me in check, this lad. Survival is a word made up between survive, thrive, and revive. Survival. Or survive. You see, as Christians, we don't want to just survive, do we? We want to be able to thrive in the environment where God has placed us. And we want to be revived by His Spirit so we can shed light into the change environment around us and not succumb to the negative aspects of it. So here's my proposal. 
We need to hold fast to the rock-solid, unchanging principles and values of the kingdom of God and apply these creatively to the changing world environment in which we live. And we need to do this as a daily strategy. That sounds pretty simple. Let me just unpack it a little bit. We need to hold fast to the rock-solid, unchanging principles of the values of the kingdom of God. See, a lot of people don't. They try and adapt the principles of the kingdom of God to the things around them and try and find reasons why they don't have to be based on this, why they can compromise the values. And how often have I heard, oh, yeah, but Chris, we don't live in that world anymore. Things have changed. You know, yes, I know things have changed. My eyes are wide open. But you don't have to change to conform to it. Because if we will place our feet solidly on the values and the principles of the kingdom of God, then the Holy Spirit who dwells within every born-again believer will enable us to creatively apply those into our environment. It's a rock-solid strategy built on a rock-solid God. And so I've called the sermon tonight, God the Rock. And I want to develop this from two texts, one in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and one in the New Testament from Matthew. Hold the two together to form this message. But first, I need to establish the idea in the Old Testament of God the Rock. It's not just a quaint expression that's used one, one time or two times in the Old Testament. It's literally littered throughout the Old Testament, dozens of dozens of times. If you do a concordant search, you'll find... God the rock, God the rock of Israel, God my rock. In words of, to that effect, over and over again. It has its uh, genesis in Genesis. It has its origin, its first appearance in Genesis 49 verse 24. And it's the story of jo Joseph blessing his sons. When he gets to his son Jacob, he, uh, he prays a blessing over Jacob. And part of that prayer of blessing is he's recounting how God has equipped the son of his to withstand the enemy. And it reads as follows. His bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. That's the first time it's used. And thereafter, as I said, it appears many, many, many times. Psalm 18 verse 2, for instance. It's actually cited in 2 Samuel 22 verse 2 as well. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now I want you to notice those words. Fortress, refuge, stronghold. These scriptures are not talking about a rock. As in, I'll throw you with a rock. <laughs> He's talking about this humongous fortress this bastion of strength and stability. So I want to put a picture up on the screen to, um, to show you what it kind of pictures. That's, that's Masada. That's in the Dead Sea area of Israel. I've been there on two occasions to the top of that. It's huge. They have a cable car running up the one side now, and there's a kind of a path that you can hike up if you are fitter than the cyclists. I, and I, I didn't try that. But it's, it's towering. When you look at that thing, you say, whoa, an unmovable rock. On one occasion, I was standing on the top, and I was looking out at the desert landscape. 
and three MiG jets from the Israeli Air Force flew by below me. It was a wonderful experience. I looked down, these things went past. They were patrolling the area. A little bit of background on this particular place. You can see there are ruins on the top of that where they've been excavating because this was a place that the emperor and then the later governors of the area and the later the kings and so on had used as a, a hidey hole, a safe place. If people were after them, they'd go and hide up there because it's virtually unassailable. Virtually unassailable. But in 70 AD, the Romans came, they got sick and tired of the rebellion of the Jewish nation and they laid siege to Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple and they started wiping out Jews and those who remained, they deported them. But the zealots, the, the few that remained, ran and hid up there. And it took the Roman armies years and years and years. And they slowly built a ramp until they could march up that ramp. When they got to the top, there was not one Jewish person left alive. Because they had taken their own lives. And their bodies were strewn in their synagogue under which they had buried their sacred scrolls. They said, we will die before we'll allow the Romans to put their hands on the word of God. You know, the first time I went up there and heard that story in that environment, I had a profound spiritual experience. I mean, there's nothing Christian about that, Masada. But just to think of a people who were prepared to sacrifice their life rather than allow their scriptures to fall into the hands of the pagan Romans. It was a deeply moving experience. Now with that imagery in your minds and what that evokes in us, let me take you to the first of the two scriptures. It's Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. And it reads as follows, just a short passage. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is He. Holman's Christian Standard Bible phrases it a little bit differently. It says as follows. It says, I will proclaim the name of my God. The rock! Exclamation mark. So it wasn't just a description. They were proclaiming this as one of the names of God. God is, capital T, capital R, the rock. The solid one. The unmovable one. The unchangeable one. The trustworthy one. The reliable one. The one on whom we can build our lives. Listen to the attributes in that passage. It says, His works are perfect. That means complete, sincere, undefiled, upright, true. In other words, what he does is perfect. And then it goes and it says, his ways are just, right, lawful, appropriate. In other words, how he does things is just. What he does is perfect, and how he does it is absolutely right, appropriate, righteous, and true. And then it says, he is a faithful God, this God, the rock. He has moral integrity and truth, and it goes on, he does no wrong. This is the God whom we can depend on, right? We've said it over and over again. God is good and in Him is no... He's light. He's no darkness in Him. 
He's good and perfect in all His ways. If we will build our lives on Him, we will stand secure, irrespective of the things that come at us, the changes in our lives, the traumas, the heartbreaks, the failures, the smashed hopes, the successes which often kill us faster. We can withstand all of that if our faith is based in one like this. God, the rock. God the rock stands absolutely firm in a sea of change. And we can stand firm if we are built on him. I want to give you one other picture just to help you remember this. Because pictures are so evocative. Look at that. Now that's not a creation of Disney World. That's an actual thing that exists in the Arctic Circle, in the Arctic Sea. Just outside the circle of ice, etc. I mean, look at that towering rock. Those are the Arctic waters churning around at the bottom. And on the top, that's a lighthouse. Somebody asked me, how did they build it? How did they get the materials up there? I don't know. A lot of helicopters, I suppose. But that's a lighthouse. Rock of ages, standing strong above the churning seas of change. And on the top, the church. Because that's what a lighthouse is. That's the church. And you, and you and me, we're part of that church. Part of that lighthouse. Built strong on a rock that cannot be moved. Now, to bridge the gap between this passage in Deuteronomy and the passage where I want to take you, which is in Matthew, I want to give you a little insight into an Old Testament prophecy, which is one of the most exciting for me. You'll see why in a moment. But it's one of the few prophecies when we can look at history books. And we can go back and say, look how exactly this was fulfilled in the hundreds of years that played out after that. It's the kingdom of Babylonia. And the king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. He is the most powerful world leader of his time. Babylonian was probably the first great world empire. It ruled the known world. And he woke up all of a sweat one morning. He'd had this awesome dream that shook him to his core, but he couldn't understand it. So he gets his soothsayers and his astrologer, and his fortune tellers and his prophets together. And I, I think he really knew that they were a bunch of charlatans. Because he says to them as follows, Gentlemen, I want you to explain and interpret a dream for me. I can imagine them all saying, sure, sure, King. But here's the catch. You've got to tell me what the dream is. I'm not going to tell you. Tell me the dream and the interpretation. Then I'll know you're true. And they put up a hangover howl. They said, no, King, nobody on earth could ever do that. Uh, he executed them for that wisecrack. But there was a man living in his kingdom by the name of Daniel. Daniel was a young Jewish man that was brought from the Holy Land in exile, but he had been handpicked together with two of his friends to grow up in the royal court because he was a highly intelligent man and they could see that the God of Israel favored him. So Daniel, that night in his prayer time, goes down on his knees and says, Oh mighty God, I've heard that the king has had this dream that nobody can understand. Would you not please explain it to me, what the dream is and how I should interpret it, so I can go to him and he will know that God reigns. So 
God did. Told him what the dream was. Told him how to understand it. So he goes to the king. He says, my king, I can tell you what your dream was. I can imagine the king saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sharpening his sword. And he tells him the contents of it. He says, Almighty King, this is what you saw. In your dream you saw an awesome statue with a head of gold. And its chest and upper arms were of silver. And its waist and thigh was of burnished bronze. And its legs were of iron. And its feet were a mixture of clay and iron. That's what you saw, O king. And I can imagine the king's eyes getting wider and wider and wider with every word from Daniel's lips. Yeah, that's what I saw, Daniel. And then Daniel goes on and says this, verses 34 and 35 of Daniel 2. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then he gave him the interpretation. He said, great king, you are the head of gold. I can imagine the king going, oh, thank heavens. So it's not going to affect you, great king. You are the king that rules supreme. But after you will come another nation. And after that, and by the way, the history, this is where history comes in. We know that the next empire that came after that were the Medes and Persians. And the Persia became the greatest world empire. And it was symbolized by silver. And then after them came the Greeks. And they were symbolized by bronze. And after that came the easiest one to interpret after that came the Roman Empire, the Iron Empire. It was called that. For it crushed everything that stood before it, like an iron colossus tramping over the earth and breaking everything before it. And then he explained the meaning of the rock. He says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever itself. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut from the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now here's the wonderful thing. In the reign of the Roman Empire, between two great emperors, that rock, hewn not with human hands, came tumbling down from heaven and smashed into the kingdoms of this world. And that rock had a name. His name was Jesus. The rock of ages came and became a man and set up a kingdom that will endure forever, not with military might and power, but with love and righteousness and self-sacrifice. A kingdom that conquered, not through putting others to the sword, but by allowing himself to be crucified on behalf of all humanity. The rock, God the rock, came and set up a kingdom, and that kingdom endures 2,000 years later. Don't believe the lies that say 
that the church, the Christendom in, in the world is shrinking and Islam is growing. It's not so. Yeah, in certain parts of the world it's shrinking, like Europe. But across, especially the third world, Christianity, the kingdom of God, is growing and growing and growing and growing world without end. Now, that takes me directly into the second passage I want to open up for you. It's the story of Jesus taking his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was called Banias in those days as well. Panias, of the god Pan. And today it's called Banias. I've been again, I've been there a couple of times on my visits to Israel. It's a special place. It's the, in fact, if you can put up the other picture, I'll show you. It's the source of the River Jordan. You see that towering cliff, and then slightly off-center to the left is that big cave? Well, the water comes from Mount Hermon, several kilometers in the background, and it travels underground until it bubbles up there in that cave. And then it pours out. They've then made this sort of fairly artificial channel in the front here to, to redirect it a bit. But it's the source, and has always been for as long as people can remember the source of the River Jordan. Now, the pagans of the time believed that river sources were spiritually potent places. You see, they saw the underworld as literally being under the earth, the place of the deceased spirit of the dead, the ungodly, the unclean spirits and demons. So they saw river sources as the place where the underworld could enter into the world of man. So they gave them names. This one had a name. You, you are going to guess its name as we read through the scripture. Let me tell you anyway. The name of this particular river source was called the Gates of Hades. That's what it was called. Here's Jesus standing with his disciples. Okay, let me just read it to you rather than describe it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is in Matthew 16, verse 18. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? You, you see, if you go to that place, you'll see the ruins of many pagan temples. Because it was seen as a spiritually potent place, they erected temples to Pan, the goat god, to the emperors of Rome, and they made grottos. You can see one of the grottos up there in the middle there in, in the cliff and so on. So it's littered with these remnants of pagan worship. So he's looking around and he's saying, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus says to his disciples, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, this is not the first time he's been called Peter, by the way. Jesus called him Peter when he appointed him as a disciple right at the beginning. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock. By the way, the word Peter, Jesus was probably speaking in Aramaic, but in the Greek in which it's written in our scriptures, the word for Peter here is from the Greek word petros, which literally means small rock. I'll throw you a whiffer. That's rock. 
But Petra, the word that he uses for on this rock I will build my church, means big, towering, fortress, like that one you see there, like Masada. So it's as if he's saying, Peter, little stone, I have something greater in mind here on which I'll build my church. So what is that something greater? Well, the Roman Catholics have argued for about 1,700 years now that it's about papal succession. Peter was the first pope, and thereafter there were other popes, so this was the big revelation. This was the rock on which the church is built. Protestants say, no, 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 you got that all wrong. It's this declaration by Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you know what the scriptures don't do for us? So they don't tell us often what Jesus was doing when he spoke these words. So we've got to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. But do you think he could have possibly been gesturing to this towering rock behind him and said, little stone, Peter, little stone, on this rock, I will build my church. I don't think so. I think there's a better explanation. Here's what I think he was doing. I think he took his hand and he gestured to himself. And he said, little Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Let me paraphrase. Peter, you have heard and your ancestors have heard over the millennia that God is the rock of Israel. I am that rock. And on this rock, myself, who I am, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to die and rise from the dead and ascend back to heaven, what I'm going to teach and what I'm going to model on this, I will build my church. And the powers of the underworld, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against this church that I build. I want you to note some things. He said, I will build my church. I, Jesus, will build my church. So often we think we're building the church, huh? No, I'm not talking about the buildings. I'm talking about you know the programs and the orders and the structures. And we call people apostles because they lay down foundations in the church and all that sort of stuff. But it's, it's Jesus who builds the church. Him and him alone. And we've learned from Deuteronomy thirty two, his work is perfect. It's been said many times I've heard that when the church is functioning as it should, as a true reflection of its architect, of its head, of its source, Jesus, it is the most precious and wonderful thing on the face of the earth, of infinite beauty and infinite worth. When the church is functioning badly, it's an abomination. It just breaks and hurts. Because when we try and build the church, we build rubbish. When Jesus builds the church, it's perfect because he is perfect in all his ways and all he does is good. Note also, he says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The shifting sands of Masada's environment will never rise high enough to cover it with sand. And the waters in that Arctic area we're never going to rise high enough in our lifetimes, that's for sure, ever to get anywhere near the top of that. And the kingdom of God is nothing that can overwhelm it. Nothing, not even the powers of hell itself. 
And we are the lighthouse on the top of it. We stand secure on the God who is the rock. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God endures forever. The values and principles of the kingdoms of the world change, but the values and principles of the kingdom of God remain unchanged. This is a fundamental mistake that Christians make. They listen to the voice of the world which says, Oh, my friend, you know, you've been sleeping like a rubble stiltskin. It's time to wake up. You know, the world's changed and all the values and all the principles are changed. Truth is just a fluid motion now. It's relative. It's a fat lie straight from the gates of Hades. Truth is unchanging for truth is not a concept. Truth is embodied in a person and his name is Jesus, the rock of ages. And he is the same now as he was yesterday. He is unchanging. Truth does not change. The principles of the kingdom of God do not change. And we better not mess with them and to pretend that they are flexible and negotiable because they are not. We've just got to learn to apply them with creativity into our environments, into our life circumstances. But the principles and the values remain unchanging. If we are going to thrive in these tumultuous times, we need to be part of that lighthouse on the rock, built into the house that Jesus is building, the house on the rock. And that's the church, the bastion of truth, the foundation of reality in our world. So an appropriate response at this point is if you... Honestly, if anybody's sitting here and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, my goodness, there's no point in going one step further until you deal with that. Because we, a person must turn to Jesus and be spiritually regenerated to be part of this lighthouse that's built on the rock. Otherwise, what I'm saying just has no application in your life. So the first thing is, is to come to Him and surrender and be born again of the Spirit of God. But I think as Christians who are born again of the Spirit of God, we need to do some repenting maybe, huh? Maybe we tonight need to take stock of what we've been building on in the last umpteen years. What have you been building your life on? The principles of the kingdom of God or the changing values of this world system? Have you been trying to build a life on little pebbles? Well, kick them out the way and build them again on the unyielding, rock-solid values of the Word of God. We might need to repent and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been building wrong. I got an email when I got home after the two morning services from a lady I hadn't met before. I think she and her husband are quite new to the church. And she said, I'm the person who came up and shook her hand and said, thank you for the message. I kind of remembered a little bit. And she said, um, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. But I suddenly realized that I've moved so far away from the rock-solid beliefs of my early Christianity. She'd gone and done a master's at a, uh, UNISA, one of those places, and it had just taken her off track. And she realized that she needed to repent. If the message was just for that one lady, it's worth it. But I think it's for more than one.
I think it's for all of us, and to one extent or another. Now, how, lastly, are we to build our lives on Him? You know, over the years, folk have come to me from time to time, not too often because I probably show my irritation. A bit of a grumpy old so-and-so. And they say, Chris, I wish you'd give more practical life applications, you know, so we can, so we can do this stuff. Like, like money. Don't talk about the principle of giving. Tell us we must pay 10%, man, and we'll curse you, but we'll know what we're supposed to be doing. I just get irritated because all of our life conditions are totally different. But the principles and the values remain the same. Man, if we've got a hold of Jesus and His Word, then the Holy Spirit will apply those into the circumstances of our individual lives. And we don't need somebody to moralize and tell us, do this and don't do that. Because we'll be applying the values of the Word of God into our life circumstances. But let me tell you that maybe there's a good place to start. If you want some practical guidance, go to Jesus' first sermon, first recorded sermon. His inauguration sermon. It's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now here's a fine picture for you. Jesus, the rock from heaven, goes up on a rock. Sermon on the Mount is literally Sermon on the Rock. And he stands on this rocky shelf and he preaches about the values of his kingdom. So the rock stands on a rock and he gives us rock-solid foundational principles for our lives. So this is a pretty good place to start, right? Go to the Sermon on the Mount and listen to how he concludes his sermon. Because I want to conclude with the same words. He says in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Note carefully. Anyone who hears, that means gives focused attention to. Now we're not talking here about the verse a day keeps the devil away quiet time. You know, faithful daily readings, just whip through a little quickie and then hop into your car. We're talking about giving serious, concerted attention to what God has said. Thinking about it and seeking to apply it. He says, gives, hears these words of mine. It's the words of Jesus we must give attention to. Look, thank God for anointed teachers in the household of God, but it's not their words that we are supposed to be listening to. Shame, John has now been the butt of two of my sermons, so I might as well make him the butt of the third. But people like John Piper, you know, and Paul Washington, it's not, the, it's not that, John. No. And ladies, it's not Joyce Meyer's words. No, it just isn't. And those of you who are under 40, that means the bulk of you guys, it's not Andy Stanley's words you must be listening to. And it certainly is not my words you must be listening to. It's the words of the rock. Give particular attention to what he has said. For in his word is truth and in his word is life. 
sound simplistic? No. I mean, the things of the kingdom of God are simple, that even a child can understand them. But they're not that easy to do. Look what Paul said about this. Romans 12 verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. I can almost imagine Paul saying, understand? Stop it. Stop being programmed by the world. But he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of our mind comes through the washing of the word. And Jesus is the incarnate word. And the Bible is the inscribed word of the living God. And then he says, anybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's what it's all about, guys. That's why I say this sort of thrival strategy must be a daily strategy. Daily centering ourselves on the Word of God, His principles and His values, thinking through our days and saying, Lord, these are the things that are, are coming at me today. How am I, what, what principles in your Word apply here and here and here? What are the truths that I can stand on in this day? And then we go and do it. We don't just say, well, I've done that, you know, I've thought the good thought. No, it's fight the good fight, not, thought, not think the good think. And we go and we do what he says in his word. And we are transformed. Okay. Secret of thriving, surviving, thriving, being revived in these times is first of all to realize that God and God alone is our rock. Everything else is just pebbles, guys. Just pebbles. Grasp the wonderful, glorious truth that Jesus Christ is God the rock. We don't have to have this ethereal kind of concept of a God out there somewhere, maybe. For he, that rock, has come and said, I'm here. Here's what I say. Here's what I do. Look at me. Follow me. Listen to me. Emulate me. Allow me into your life. We've got a, a rock solid connection we can make. Thirdly, understand that he's building his church on himself. None other. And that you and I, we are part of his church. Find your place, lastly, in the house that he's building on the rock. Now, he's building his church across the world, not just in particular local churches, but every local church is like a rock outcropping of that great foundation rock. And so practically we find our place within a local church where we can build together living stones being joined together into this wonderful fortress that God is building. And then practice daily our survival strategy of building on His values and His values alone. I want to end with um, a words of a song. We might well sing it just now. It's an old song. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I want us to spend a little time in reflective prayer. The worship group will come up and they can gently lead us into a time of worship. 
Uh, just think about some of these things that have been said. Think about where you are. Allow me to just lead you in prayer. Bow, bow your knees, bow your head before the rock of ages. Holy Spirit, I can speak words, but I can't bring life. We can minister to each other, but we cannot minister unction and anointing, for it all comes from you. So please won't you come now and blow across our lives as we kneel before you, as we bow before you. And, and help us to actually really grasp how, how these things spoken apply to me right now within the context of my life right now. Help me to consider with wisdom what I'm built on, where I'm trying to find the foundations of my life. 